Hello, and welcome to another edition of Crashing the War Party, where me and my co-host, Daniel Larison, try to parse the Washington spin from the actual news this week and make better sense of how U.S. foreign policy is working or not working for you. This week, we'll be talking to anti-war activist and veteran Matthew Ho about the peace movement in Ukraine and his inside thoughts on the military-industrial complex. But first, there is continued restiveness in Syria and renewed concern that Washington's chessboard games will result not only in our own service members being caught in the crossfire, but also partners who had fought for our anti-ISIS strategy left out in the cold. Writing in his Substack recently, Middle East observer and reporter Matthew Petty noted that there has been a serious upheaval among the Kurdish Syrian Defense Forces who have been working with the U.S. in anti-counterterrorism missions in northeastern Syria for the last several years. These are opponents of Assad and Turkey who have carved out ter- territory in the region, but now there's been a revolt inside the SDF and fighting, particularly in the southeastern province of Deir al-Zor, where U.S., Russian, Turkish, and Arab fighters have been scrabbling for the oil-rich territory. According to Matthew, not surprisingly, the U.S. hasn't managed the situation there very well, pointing to the recruitment of sketchy commander Abu Kaula in 2016 to run the SDF forces in Deir al-Zor. Turns out, according to Matthew, this guy worked for all sides, Assad, the opposition, and even the Islamic State, before the U.S. co-opted him. After years of torture and other crimes under his male-fisted rule in Deir al-Sor, the U.S.-backed SDF had him arrested, which started the mutiny earlier this summer. Dan, you brought uh, my attention to this article which is very well written, but exposes the tangled web of alliances and hard-scrabble clan politics on the ground in Syria. What is going on there, and what has the U.S. set into motion that it might not be able to claw back? Yeah, thanks, Kelly. Uh, so, uh, yeah, Matt, uh, Matt Mitty's, uh reporting was really interesting. It was it, it alerted me to this story uh, that I had not seen yet uh, when when it first came out, um, and and so it was it was helpful to me to to figure out some of the the complexities of what's going on in in northeast Syria. We we've talked a lot about the U.S. military presence there, but uh, we haven't paid as much attention to uh, the dynamics of the relationship between U.S. partners and the local population. Uh, there are uh, years of simmering resentments against SDF rule in this part of Syria. Uh, of course, the SDF, as as Petty points out, the SDF didn't really want to be governing this part of Syria. They they didn't want the headache, but the U.S. insisted, and so the U.S. Uh, Put them in this position where they're they're really not well suited for for governing this area, and the the way that they've governed through uh, figures like this Abu Khala uh, has created lots of, of uh, grievances over the years, uh, and and those tensions have been simmering and, and finally exploded. Uh, ironically, as as uh, he points out in his report, uh, arresting Abu Khala was supposed to calm things down. It was supposed to uh, address some of these grievances, but instead it it set off. Uh, an explosion where members of his clan first started rebelling against the SDF, and then the SDF's very heavy-handed, indiscriminate response to that rebellion then triggered a more widespread uprising. And and I mean, we we've seen that kind of dynamic in many conflicts, where what may initially be a, a quite a limited conflict uh, ends up uh, spreading quickly. 
as uh, the, the the stronger party, as as the the more powerful party, clamps down uh, with an iron fist, and so that's uh, that's the the problem that we're seeing right now, and it's not clear uh, if the situation can be brought back under control, and th- this puts the U.S. in a very difficult spot where it has partners that are engaging in indiscriminate attacks, uh, shelling and bombing the, the civilian areas of Deir Azor, and uh, trying to, to reassert this authority that we wanted them to have, uh, but that they're not actually uh, using very well. And so I think that this is still one more argument for us to start disentangling ourselves from the, the situation in Syria, where we we don't have the capability to to oversee or, or govern this area, and we shouldn't, and we don't want it. And the SDF doesn't really know how to govern this area either. It ought to be uh, left either to the locals or it could be allowed to go back under the control of the Syrian government because it's, right. it's not it's not worth uh, these headaches for us to keep trying to carve out this little statelet uh, in northeast Syria. There's no, there's certainly no benefit for the U.S. in this. And I think we're seeing that there's also not much benefit for, for the people that live there. Yeah, I mean, talk about headaches. I mean, I really appreciate Matthew Petty's reporting here. He's a great reporter. He he knows uh, the issues. He knows the landscape. Uh, just excellent reportage. But it, ga- it kind of gave me a headache because it's really hard to follow where the U.S. started out in this war. And then all of the, the shifting of alliances the the different regional conflicts, the clans, the people, you know, the interests between Irani, uh, Iranian interests, Russian, Turkish, Kurdish, uh, the Assad government, the U.S., the anti-ISIS element, all of that is all tangled up in these territorial struggles at this point. And I think for regular Americans. And here you and I are are two individuals who spend 99% of our waking time reading foreign policy, national security, trying to suss out all the geopolitical trends of the day and the moment. And I was having a hard time following this because I was like, what? I don't understand. What is the U.S. interest here? Now, is it oil? Because Matthew was going back to the Trump administration and talking about how Trump made a big deal about how we have to save the oil in this this particular province, and that's why we're still there. But then we're also told, whether it be in the Trump administration or today, that we're there because of ISIS. Uh, and then we we have all of these Russian and Iranian interests in there. This is scary stuff because I feel like I just feel like this is Cold War politicking all over again. Like we're being told on the surface that we're there because of a t- counterterrorism met- mission, but there are all these other interests that are keeping us mirrored in the region that most Americans would not understand or not be able to comp- comprehend. I'm, I don't think I can comprehend this. And I, I think I, I try to keep up on issues as much as possible, but I really don't see a, a U.S. interest. And it makes me very nervous because I know we have actual service members in there who probably are just as confused about what their mission is 
why they're there. Um, I, I don't know. I agree with you. This is just another data point and the argument for getting out. All right. Well, and I think one of the, the sources of that confusion is that lots of interested parties have an incentive to create confusion about who it is that's actually involved in the fighting. And so, for instance, the SDF now very much wants to make the, the rebels against their rule uh, out to be uh, supporters of ISIS. They want to use the rhetoric of counterterrorism to justify their crackdown, which is, as we know, often how uh, local partners and, and, and authoritarian governments will use counterterrorist uh, framing uh, to justify doing what it is they already want to do. And, and of course, the, 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 what makes this even more ridiculous is that the, the, real, the original ISIS threat, the, the, the caliphate that once existed, has not existed for many years. And if there are still remnants here and there, they don't pose the kind of threat that justifies our continued involvement. And, and yet that is the, the official explanation for, for the continued presence uh, that, as you say, is, is really divorced from what's, what's going on and, and what are, we're really doing there, uh, which seems just to be depriving this territory from the Syrian government, I guess just to spite them uh, because they won the civil war and we, we wanted them to lose and, and our policy failed. And so we, we cling to this very bizarre patchwork quilt approach to the country that, that isn't advancing our interests. It isn't making Syrians any better off. Uh, it's, it's just helping to foment some of these, uh, conflicts, uh, between different groups of Syrians. Yeah. And I, I can't help but think that at some point, and you saw a little hint of this, it, you know, that Matthew had pointed out uh, from the Trump administration that at some point that we might indulge our Turkish partners and basically cut loose our Kurdish friends. You know, it might we might get to the point where we have to tell, Kur, you know, uh, Turkey, OK, we, you know, do what you got to do. And uh, all, and then just turn our backs on people who had been fighting for us, with us, aside, alongside us uh, in in, a, in that ISIS anti ISIS mission, because for whatever reason, it's politically viable at that moment to make sure that we keep Erdogan happy. And I, I'm not so sure that that's not going to happen. So I just feel like I don't even trust that uh, the United States would do the right thing. I feel like getting out, sure, if we if we left now, we'd probably be leaving Kurdish partners hanging. But I'm not so sure that staying there and getting into these ge geopolitical food fights, which include a NATO member, Turkey, isn't going to result in cutting them loose anyway. I feel like we, maybe the time is now to start setting the stage. <laughs> And I don't know how you do that, Dan, because it just seems like every every way you look, every door you 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 approach, there seems to be um, a, a negative um, uh, outcome on the other side. This is this is a real mess. This is a real jam. I don't really know how to get out of it, but I know one thing: that the Biden administration has never given us a clear uh, strategy. Um, policy for uh, reasoning that for why we are in Syria. I feel they've taken it for granted that the American people either don't care or are not well-informed 
And when pushed to shove, they just say it's an anti-ISIS, you know, project, program, policy. But somebody's got to put the feet to the fire here. And unfortunately, the only person I think that's done that on Capitol Hill at this point is is uh, Matt Gates when he promoted that uh, legislation that would have taken U.S. troops out of Syria after, what, 90 days or something like that if, if we if we didn't have a war powers vote or I don't know. I don't remember. And I'm sorry, I don't have it in front of me, but I don't see anybody on Capitol Hill actually pushing this issue uh, either, which is, is, is sad. Well, I should say uh, Congressman uh, Jamal Bowman has also been pretty good in, in bringing right. this up again. Sorry. Uh, and it, no, no, that's fine. Uh, but he, he's been bringing it up a couple of times, uh, you know, again, challenging it on the basis of war powers, saying that either Congress authorizes the mission there or they have to leave, which is the way that's how it's supposed to work. And and the, the, the frustrating thing about all of this is that U.S. troops have been in Syria, have been either operating over or in Syria for nine years without congressional approval. They have no mandate from anybody to be there. The, the president just sent them there and said, go, go fight ISIS. And because that was a popular cause, very not many people complained about it back then. And, and not many people have complained about it since. And Congress has essentially punted on the issue uh, indefinitely. Uh, and, and when it has been brought to a vote on one of these amendments that Bowman brought up, uh, Congress has, as usual, failed to do their job. Uh, they, they have to be pressed to, to take that responsibility more seriously uh, because w- without pressure from Congress, the White House can do whatever it likes, as, as we have seen that they, they will do. proud to introduce Matthew Ho, a friend and a committed anti-war activist to the show this week. Matthew has uh, is a senior fellow at the Eisenhower Media Network. And as you recall, because he's been on the show before in 2009, Matthew resigned in protest from his post in Afghanistan with the State Department over the American escalation of the war. Prior to his assignment in Afghanistan, Matthew served in the Marine Corps doing two tours in Iraq. When not deployed, Matthew worked on Afghanistan and Iraq war policy and operations issues at the Pentagon and State Department from 2002 to 2008. His writings have appeared in Atlanta Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Counterpunch, CNN, Defense News, The Guardian, Huffington Post, Mother Jones, and all a host of other outlets. Um, And he's also done a ton of media. He was named the Ridenhauer Prize recipient for truth-telling in 2010. And in 2021, he was awarded as a Defender of Liberty by the Committee for the Republic. Thank you so much for being on the show again, Matthew. Hey, thank you for having me back on. I appreciate it. Yeah, we're we're honored. Um, I appreciate your insights because you can speak of your experience from inside the belly of the beast, but you're also a whistleblower who understands the risks of speaking out. And since your time in war and in government, you've been committed to exposing the corruption of the military industrial complex and for reforming Washington uh, so that war and work making becomes is not the first resort, but the last resort in solving our problems abroad. 
Um, in that spirit, can you tell me how you see the peace movement today? Has it been split over the war in Ukraine? Are you feeling a real fracture among your friends and compatriots from, you know, the, the post 9-11 era? I think there has been uh, a, a splitting or a fracturing, as you say, Kelly, uh, within the peace movement. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a difficult thing to take in the war in Ukraine in many ways because Russia's uh, invasion was a clear-cut violation of international law. Uh, it has been a ruinous, tragic war that has been displayed on television and on the internet and by mainstream legacy corporate media in a manner that the wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Libya uh, weren't. Um, same time, too, it's complicated, though, because certainly the invasion was not unprovoked. And certainly there's a whole history, a, a background, a context, uh, deliberate uh, diplomatic malpractice for years by both sides that lead to this war. But the framing of the war as a simple good versus evil narrative, which I think a lot of people in the peace movement were looking for as something that has split the peace movement. So uh, I've, I've, I sense that that it's being repaired, that it is coming back together because this war is now in its 18th month or so. And uh, it has become clear to, uh, I think, most everyone that there is going to be no military victory for either side uh, unless there's some type of unforeseen collapse. And I, I unfortunately feel that the Ukrainians are doing their best uh, with their uh, decisions to maybe reach that point of collapse. However, um, I think uh, this idea that there has to be a negotiated settlement, that peace will not come through victory, only through negotiations, is something that is healing that rift within the peace movement. And I think it's at the point where people are, are being able to say, Look, let's not argue about where this came from. Let's argue about how we end this because the atrocity, the scale, the, the, the constant escalation of it just today, you know, right before we taped, uh, listening to democracy now talking about how Biden administration is going to be sending depleted uranium. Mm-hmm. Right. Which, of course, was going to happen because they were sending Abrams tanks and that's what Abrams tanks fire. They fire depleted uranium rounds. But, you know, that that idea of this escalation continual, I think many in the peace movement see that regardless of who they blame, who they, they call the villain, who they call the victim um, there. I think most of us are getting to the point now where, OK, stop arguing about that. And how do we constructively and uh, resolutely end uh, this death and this destruction? Yeah. And I would imagine uh, the veterans community might be equally split. Like at the beginning of the war, I remember a number of stories showing veterans, U.S. veterans who had fought in Afghanistan and Iraq volunteering to fight in Ukraine on behalf of Ukrainian military forces. But then there were other veterans who had come forward and who had said, listen, enough of this. You know, um, this is not our war. This is not in America's interest. Uh, we have to be more restrained. Um, did you see also among your friends, among in the veterans community, a split? Like, for example, I see you out there and you're cautioning restraint on, on this war. But then I see folks like Paul Reichoff, who had founded Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America, out there with his Ukrainian flag and his Twitter moniker and really going after anybody who 
is skeptical of Biden's Ukraine policy. It's like, wow. Um, I, I guess it's reflective, I guess, of the American public in terms of how people are positioning on this issue. Yeah, I think a lot of it, what you see with that split, and I, I do indeed see that and I see it very, very much so, um, is almost like a reflexive moral lurch, like a, a reflexive moral reaction. This idea that perhaps to be on the side with the white hats this time, perhaps to be a part of something that can be characterized as clear cut as we are helping Ukraine defend itself from invasion and occupation to both figuratively and literally be on the side that is resisting. Right. Uh, a lot of us, uh, we've probably talked about this before, Kelly, you know, uh, this idea that so many of us watched Red Dawn when we were kids. Right. People aren't familiar with Red Dawn. Yeah. Cold War movie about uh, the invasion of the United States by the Soviet Union, a band of high school kids in Colorado fight back, you know, and become yep. gorillas. And so many of us grew up on that. And then we found ourselves not being the Wolverines and the Wolverines mm -hmm. were the band of high school kids who were fighting the Soviets. We were the uh, villains. We had the black hats on. And so I think for many veterans to see, they see this as an opportunity to flip that and to place themselves into something where it can be argued. This is a clear cut Manichaean good versus evil. We have the white hats on. Of course, there are others who are against it because what they'll say is that this is a continuation of all these other wars. Look, the same guys that were in charge of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan are in charge of this for the American side. It's the same grouping of people. How would you expect it to be any different? And then, of course, you know, what I think also too, the more the context understood, the background, uh, the events that lead to this, yeah, I think you have more who, more who are then skeptical and then, of course, there are so many veterans who are cynical. And just to remind people that more, at least in the last polling I saw, more veterans felt the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were a mistake than the U.S. population were. Uh, not by much, but by a few percentage points. So veterans themselves are more cynical over, over U.S. wars, including proxy wars like this, than the general population. You know, and it, it really kind of broke my heart a bit when I'd see these stories early on in the Ukraine conflict where you had... Iraq and Afghanistan veterans going over there and, you know, either in the words that they conveyed or family members or what have you, it seemed as though they were trying to right the wrongs of of the conflict mm -hmm. that, that they had fought in or felt like they had unfinished business. Like here was a clear cut, like you said, moral uh, fight between good and evil and they were going to get in on that uh because they they it was almost like they were filling a hole that was left right. from their service in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan and to me that's just so um uh, disheartening uh that because I understand that I having covered that war and I know you do too and Dan is there there were so many men and women who cycled in and out of those wars and to see the Taliban now in control of Afghanistan, for example, to see um, the fragile government in, a, in Iraq and the people still suffering from poverty and lack of, of facilities and, you know, like just the, the basics that we had promised them. And they feel like, what, did, what was my service for? And then they see this war in, in Ukraine. They go, okay, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna fulfill that. I'm, I'm gonna do something where I can feel like I'm, I'm, I'm actually 
winning something for somebody and doing the right thing. And it, it is very frustrating. It is. And it is, this gets down to the crux of moral injury. Uh, this, this really deep uh, destruction of one's uh, moral, uh, ethical, religious, spiritual fiber. It's something that is prominent in veteran suicides and combat veteran suicides, but it's also very prominent in suicides among other careers. So among law enforcement personnel, first responders in general, uh, healthcare uh, workers, uh, you see this uh, crisis that occurs, this existential spiritual crisis that goes to the very being of who someone is, and it comes over betrayal. This idea that what you went there for, in the case of, of veterans, that you went there to do good, you went there supposedly to, uh, I came across these numbers uh, not too long ago, but in the spring of 06, so three years after the invasion of Iraq, you still had a majority, a super majority, I think it was over 70% of Marines in Iraq who were surveyed who said that Iraq was involved in 9-11. Right. So you have that type of betrayal that they were lied to, that they were sent to do this, what they sacrificed, what their friends uh, sacrificed and what they did take part in that killing, uh, you know, to come back with that. And so I think this opportunity for some of them to go to Ukraine then to atone for that, to make good for that, to fill that hole that you described certainly is the case. Uh, many have come back. Many have been killed, as we know. Many have come back and said, it's not worth it. It's completely corrupt over there. It's all screwed up, et cetera, et cetera. And others have come back and said they were glad they did it. Uh, so I think each individual, if they go, finds is going for a different reason. I also have seen a lot of uh, some of the ones that have been highlighted in terms of veterans have gone over there to fight and help Ukraine. I've seen a lot of them are younger. And they didn't participate in the Iraq and Afghan wars. They weren't involved in combat. So I mean, there's also, here's my chance to go and do this. Here's my chance to take part. Here's my chance to be a warrior. Certainly their peers and others have done it, those who are older. And now my generation doesn't get a chance to do this. And here's our chance. And, and that, uh, yeah, that can be, uh, I guess, uh, tempting for people that, that want to go into that uh into that kind of service to, to think that that's that's what it's about uh, thanks matt for coming on the show uh, it's great to have you back on uh, and we wanted to talk to you a bit about uh, the work that you're also doing now with the eisenhower media network uh which is a, a group of experts uh those who have had uh experience in government who, who are veterans uh who have served uh who are bringing their knowledge of how uh the government and how the military functions uh and and then bringing a, a skeptical eye to how it operates and what it does around the world. Um, and one of the things that you emphasize is that you are interested in combating the undue influence of the military-industrial congressional complex. Um, and, of course, there's an overabundance of examples of how that influence distorts our policies and corrupts our government. Um, what are a few of the most egregious examples that you can think of uh, of this undue influence that you see at work in our military spending and foreign policy today? Oh, it, it, it's, you know, I, I think people are familiar with the fraud, the waste, the abuse. Um, I think the, uh, uh, the amount of money that goes to the arms contractors, half of the federal, uh, half of the, of the Department of Defense spending goes to the, 
arms contractor. So the budget this year will be let's just make it easy, call it nine hundred billion. It's going to be eight hundred eighty six billion, but it's called nine hundred billion. So you're looking at half of that going to the arms makers, four hundred fifty billion, and a, half of that goes to the big five arms makers. So Lockheed, Raytheon, Boeing, General Dynamics, and I'm blanking on the other one right now. But, um, you know, I mean, so I think people are familiar with that. They're, they're familiar with how widespread uh, that graft is, how this is a gravy train that takes plenty on board. I'm not sure if people are as familiar with how this takes the role it takes in policy. Um, certainly, there's the other part of it is the lobbying. Uh, we know there's more defense lobbyists on Capitol Hill than there are members of Congress. I think there's more than a thousand defense lobbyists on Capitol Hill, and we have what 535 members of Congress. Uh, we also are, you know, the amount of money that the defense industry puts into uh, the campaign coffers of politicians, which is, you know, just one more element of the legalized bribery that we have for a political system in this country. But the, it's the policy aspects, the way that you have uh, think tanks. Uh, and uh, universities as well that receive direct Pentagon funding, direct State Department funding, direct CIA funding, or receive money from the arms contractors, uh, and who then are the ones that are seen as the experts. They are the ones who are all over uh, the media. They are the ones who are on CNN or quoted in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, and also, too, they are the ones who are going in to brief Congress. And a number of years ago, and it's only gotten worse since I, I I used to do this when I used to go on, on Capitol Hill and you know lobby for 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 peace, but specifically getting out of the uh, Afghanistan and restraining what we were going to do in Libya and Syria. But I remember one time a military officer who was on the staff of Senator Bob Casey from Pennsylvania. Uh, you know, he told me that seven out of ten briefings that the senators got came not on foreign policy, on Iraq, on Afghanistan, et cetera, came not from uh, the Department of Defense or from the CIA or State Department or NSC, but came from think tanks. So seven out of 10 briefings these men and women had came from think tanks that were funded by the defense industry. And so that cyclical, uh, that, that cyclical process where the Congress funds the Pentagon, the Pentagon funds think tanks, funds arms contractors, the arms contractors further fund the think tanks, the think tanks come back in Right. As well, then, too, their whole media operation where they are doing their best to manufacture the consent of the American public for war. Uh, and you've seen that. You see how successful it is uh, as their push on Ukraine has waned off. Uh, and as you've seen public opinion turning against further American involvement in Ukraine, you have seen, though, some really, uh, really uh, uh, troublesome polls about uh, America's views on China. And how how many Americans view a war as an inevitable with China and how many Americans see China as the major threat to the United States. And in some cases, you know, you're talking at least pluralities and in other cases, majorities and in some cases, supermajorities, depending upon the question and the demographic. But certainly their media push against China has been very successful. Uh, so that is, I think, part of the military industrial complex that is very insidious and very nefarious, it has really, uh, that has the influence that it, you know, it goes beyond the profits and the making of the money and the spreading of that money around. It goes to the, like, how do we actually get the policies we want? Right. And, and one of the areas where we're seeing some of the, the fruits of those policies 
uh, today uh, is in Africa. And mm. I know uh, you have some colleagues that wrote a report a couple of years ago uh, very presciently warning about the, the destructive effects that U.S. policies in Africa were already having and then would have. Uh, the, the report was uh, destroying Africa, the war industry's latest cast cow and proving ground for the new American way of war. And and we've certainly seen that uh, unfolding all across West Africa as the U.S. has fueled militarism and then, and then the militaries in those countries seize power for themselves. Uh, and as as uh, the authors of that report noted, this is the fruit of more than 20 years of war on terror policies. Right. But these are policies that, that took place, that have been taking place largely without the knowledge of the public and, and largely without uh, congressional oversight. So, so how do we hold the government accountable for policies like that when they receive so little coverage and so little attention in Congress? It's difficult. It's difficult because we have a, a system of government that has been constructed over a couple hundred years to protect uh, decision making from the public. And we certainly have seen how uh, those who are in power react to pressure. And what they do is they further refine and further protect themselves. So I think the idea of, of, of that we're up against a static or a, a non-dynamic or a non-evolving organism uh, in the government, and we can look backwards and say, this worked so we can do it now, is not the case. Because the great success of, say, the anti-war movement of the 60s, the civil rights movement, uh, the great success of, say, the environmental movement in the 70s, you go up until the early 80s, you have a fantastic uh, anti-nuclear movement, right? Uh, a million and a half, two million people in Central Park in, what, 83 or 84. I think what the system did, the establishment did, it was realize that and it insulated itself from that type of pressure. And so that's how you can have something like Occupy. You can have something like Standing Rock. You can have something like uh, the Black Lives Matter protests of 2020, where you have, what, 25 million people out on the streets, biggest mass movement in American history, and then have almost no political effect, no political change. So I think, um, you know, I mean, I, I'm not providing you with answers here, and I realize that, you know, I, I think it, it is, of course, it gets back to this idea of what are we doing well, and can and we can get 25 million people on the street for certain things. Okay, well, then how do we expand that? But then how do we get that political change? And I think you have to look to disrupt the system and see where the system uh, rolls along easily for the establishment. You have to do your best to upend it. And so that means if you have like your carefully manicured two-party system, you have your carefully uh, manicured uh, uh, gerrymandered districts, uh, you have to bust that up. You have to run more candidates. You have to make it so that their calculations don't come out because you put in a third or fourth or a fifth factor that disrupts what uh, they uh, what they feel that they their what their uh, machinations will deliver them, and that's a big process. It's a hard process that takes a lot of resources and a lot of time. And, you know, people are struggling. And it's, so it, it's tough when, you know, 60% of the country is living paycheck to paycheck to demand that they get out and do something. You know, uh, it's really difficult to say that, right? I mean, so, but it is, we're up against a, a Leviathan. We're up against something that, uh, and in the largest of it, right? One of the things about the military industrial complex, uh, just to follow up on that point, is how spread it is. And the amount of, of money that reaches into every part of the United States, famously the F-35 
program uh, has contracts in every state but two, I believe. Right. So they spread that out. You know, and there's a great website. It's called governmentcontracts1.com and it's W O N, not O O N E. And uh, that you could type that in. You can go to there and I encourage people to do this. And over a 20 year period up through FY 2020, it will show you how much defense industry money was spent in your state, in your county, in your town. And I don't have, I can't remember the numbers here, but when I did it for North Carolina and for my county and for my town, I was absolutely astounded at how many, say, millions and millions and millions of defense dollars go into my town, into Wake Forest, North Carolina, 50,000 people. I mean, millions upon millions of dollars of defense money comes into this town. Uh, so I, I, it's, it's, it's understanding that, being aware, and then finding asymmetric ways to, to go against it. Well, thank you, Matthew. Um, we've run out of time, but and I'm sorry because there are so many other questions that I wanted to ask, but will you please come on our show again? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. And, and, and thank you guys for what you're doing, for all the work no, you do, all the writing you. to do. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Okay. You take care. Okay. Bye now. Bye. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.